Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep history alive at the community level. I'm Tara Barrett, ICH researcher with Heritage NL. In this episode, we talk with Ellen Reed about her grandmother Irene Reed, along with several other family members, on their about their experience in millinery, dressmaking, knitting, embroidery, and other textile work. Ellen Reed has been contributing to the local art scene for 30 years, a poet, playwright, visual artist, a blogger, and an arts patroness. She's a grateful and frequent contributor to The Cosmic Show. She's been an early childhood educator for 20 years. Hi, Ellen, and welcome to the show. Hi, Tara. How are you? Thank you for having me on your show. I'm great. Uh, How are you doing? Oh, fantastic. I'm really super excited and a little bit emotional for speaking to you about all this fun, crafty stuff. It's amazing to be having this chat. So thank you so much for including me in this conversation. To start off, can you give me a bit of background on, I guess, your, your own background in craft and your family kind of history in craft? I have, um, my grandmother was Irene Reed, and my aunt was Phyllis Reed. And so starting at a very early age, I spent a lot of time with both of my grandmother and my aunt. Starting with, at a very early age, I was heavily influenced by seeing them work and seeing them knit. And I remember my grandmother, who was a dressmaker, even before I could hold a pencil, having her teach me how to stitch, like she was doing a little bit of quilting one time and having her teach me as a uh, teach me how to actually like hold a needle. And, and I think I was probably maybe under four. So embroidery, dressmaking, knitting, sewing, crochet is something that's been, I've been surrounded by my entire life. My sister is Charlotte Reed and she is also a craft person. She makes beautiful pieces using recycled materials. So yes, that's my that's my core background. I'm a big supporter of of, of all crafts, and I'm I, I love that that this is a project that is going to preserve these these things in an oral way. So thank you for providing this for this service because it's it is there are many many stories and many many people that have been doing this for a very long time. So thank you for celebrating them. Thank you so much for chatting with me. I, again, I really appreciate it. Can you give me a little bit more background about your, your grandmother, your nan? Okay, my nan was um, Irene Reed. She was born in 1908 and passed away in 1997. It's been a long time since I've spoken publicly about her because I, I loved her so much. She grew up on Gulf Avenue and her mom was Mary Rose. And her mom was the primary person who taught her how to sew. When my grandmother finished trade school, she had a friend who was, okay, my grandmother was Methodist. And when she finished grade school, one of her friends who was Catholic had gone to uh, the Presentation Sisters, Mer- the Mercy Sisters, to learn basic secretarial training. And when, the, when this friend went to this first class with the, with the Mercy Sisters, the sisters said, if you have any friends who want to learn secretarial training or whatever training, have them come along. So, my, so then my grandmother had um, secretarial training and worked at Bowerings. And later on in life, my after she became after she got married she became a dressmaker and she would be hired so once after she left Barings, she became a dressmaker and people would come to her house and ask her to make dresses and such and they'd have a pattern and my and my grandmother would after her family had gone to bed she didn't have a formal studio like you would have nowadays but she would be in her living room with the patterns out and the fabric out and she'd be smoking all night and making dresses for these people in the neighbor in who had come to have her dresses had dresses made 
So she did follow a pattern and she was taught sewing by her mother. She was very well known for the hats that she made. And I have amazing memories of her and her hats. When she passed away, my aunt donated all the hats that she had to the costume bank of the entrepreneur center. So there's a whole collection of my grandmother's hats. I managed to, whether it was by accident or whatever, save one. And it's this reversible, beautiful, garish sun hat. So in the early 70s, my grandmother was one of the first instructors of dressmaking at the trade school on Prince Philip Parkway in St. John's. And that was a precursor of the Anna Templeton Center program, which is currently still on the go. So that's a basic thing. She was also one of the family members of the St. John's Guild of Embroiderers. So she did a lot of embroidery on her own and she loved to crochet and she knit. She was a very exceptional dressmaker. She made my, she made my mother's, my aunt's, my two aunt's, their hats and their full wedding garb when my mother got married in 1970 to my dad, 1971. She was so amazing. Like my, my, there was, I had this one purple little cabbage patch dress that came out, that was a recycled dress from one of that uses some of the materials from this wedding from 1971. So she was quite creative and quite, quite grand. And she loved this thing that she did for a long, long time. And her primary sewing machine, there's a Sears sewing machine that's on the fourth floor of the Anna Templeton Center, which I don't know what it's used as a functional piece, but it is on display. Like when you get off the elevator, there's a brown sewing machine in, in, the, in the sewing machine box, sewing machine desk. And that's my grandmother's. So, so she was quite, um, she was quite the lady. Like I said, I, I, I miss her terribly. And I just, she's, she's such, she was such a go-getter. And so like when I, I would go visit her after school and she'd always have crochet in her hand and I'd, I'd watch her for hours, just crocheting, crochet, 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 or knit, knit, knit. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's her basic, that's her basic story. So, which is not so basic because it's, 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 um, it's quite fantastic. So she lived on Newtown. She grew up on Gulf Avenue. They lived for um, a little while on Young Street, and then they built a house in, and moved into their house on Newtown Road in 1933. And that's where my grandmother lived until she passed away in 1997. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. And yeah. it's quite impressive. And she, um, she had two daughters, my Aunt Phyllis, who was also a very accomplished knitter, and my Aunt Libby, who lives in Port of Basque, who I didn't even talk about in my intro. And they were both very prolific knitters. And my Aunt Libby in Port of Basque used to knit. There's like um, a tourist place. So she would knit for that. It's a, like mitts and sweaters and such. And my aunt helped with the cathedral wool stall for quite a number of years. The Anglican Cathedral downtown had a annual sale twice a year. And my aunt and my grandmother both knit for that for a number of years. So, um, and my aunt was also, so a member of the Guild of Embroiderers as well. And she traveled to different conferences all over Canada to, to, to learn various neat um, skills at various um, different conferences and stuff. So that's, it's quite fantastic. But yeah, but, um, but again, she was a very well-known hat maker. But again, it was all self-taught. She never took, there's no thing back in the day of looking at Pinterest or looking on a YouTube video as to how to make a hat. She made these very lovely, very unique hats. And the pictures of my mother's wedding, my mother didn't have a veil. She had this kind of open concept. It was like a, a big round piece of fabric with a hole in the middle. And that was laid upon my mom's head. And my mother and her wedding party all had 
Uh, they all were eyelet fabric. So my mom wore white eyelet. My aunt who was pregnant, my aunt, my mother's sister wore pink eyelet and my, my Annie Phyllis, who was also in the wedding party wore purple eyelet. But again, with this open concept hat idea, which is quite fantastic. Oh, and, and one of the cool things that my mom, that my, my grandmother did for my mom was um, in 1983, my father and my mother went to a very special dinner at the Newfoundland Hotel. As everyone knows, in the summer of 1993, Princess Diana and Prince Charles came to St. John's. And my mother asked my grandmother to make a dress for this occasion. So during the receiving line, when my mother met Princess Diana, she complimented on my mother's lovely, it was a kind of a, a pistachio green, lovely satiny color dress, which I still have up in the closet. Um, and so it's, it's quite a, so to say, so, so apparently Princess Diana did compliment my, my, my mother on the lovely dress that my grandmother made. So, hey, you know, if it works for royalty, then it works for a lot of <laughs> other fantastic people. So that's a lovely, uh, it's one of my favorite stories. So you mentioned some of the dresses that were made particularly for the for a wedding and for well apparently a royal visit did your grandmother mainly make kind of very formal dresses or did she make a variety of of clothing and and things like that i'm not 100% sure but i think they tended from to my knowledge they tended to be fancier dresses and she was a perfectionist by trade and and by passion i, I don't know 100% for sure but generally these were quite fancy and quite lovely and my aunt who lived in Porta Basque told a story one time about how my grandmother was given this very lovely expensive fabric and my aunt who was a, a little girl at the time came down in the middle of the night and my grandmother was crying because she had she, I think she may have possibly cut this really expensive fabric incorrectly but I think she managed to figure it out. So I think it was generally, it was generally upper, upper-ish class people asking to get quite fancier garments made. It wasn't a lot of, to my knowledge, a lot of people recycled pieces of clothing. My grandmother's sister, my Auntie Jean, was also a very good seamstress as well. And she was my so she was, she was probably also taught sewing by my great grandmother. My Auntie Jean was very good at recycling materials like she would be pieces of clothing that were handed down from the older cousins to the younger cousins my auntie jean would actually take these jumpers and whatever and be able to recycle them so that her children would be able to use them and apparently she was also able to upcycle and redo suits and such that had, had worn out so i i don't think generally people back in the day from what i understand i don't think if you just had regular clothing made I don't think you'd go to, to, to a seamstress for that kind of stuff you would actually generally have the skills yourself but if you wanted something fancy like for a wedding or for a fancy occasion then you would come to my grandmother for for that kind of skill and you mentioned your your mom's hat was kind of an open concept hat that laid on her head do you have memories or knowledge of kind of the way that your nan went about making hats my knowledge is limited. I think with that, with the open concept, I think that was actually from a pattern. And I don't really know exactly where she got the pattern, where, where the idea for the other hats that she made. Some of it may have come from a pattern and some of it may have come from her own, her own idea and her own designs. The piece that of that reversible hat that I have, I'm not really sure if that was something that she came up with her, on her own concept or whether it's something that came from a pattern. 
I'm pretty sure this, the, the pieces from the wedding where it seems to be um, maybe a McCall's or some that kind of pattern. And it was, it's, it's very, it's very seventies. And I think the hat was part of that pattern. It was basically just a big round piece of fabric that was hemmed inside as well as outside and just kind of lay on her head like a big fluffy thing. My parents got married in PEI on a day that was like 35 plus degrees. So it was ideal for a wedding like that. And when my parents were married, my mom was an older bride. She was in her late 20s. So she didn't have a veil. She had this big fluffy hat instead of a, a veil. So it's it was quite appropriate. And where you had um, an older sister-in-law and a mother of three, future mother of four, they all had the same style. So it was very appropriate for four different women who were living for leading four different lifestyles. So I thought that's a very inclusive style of hat for that. But yeah, the other hats were very, very, she had a very signature style. Back in the day, I remember my grandmother wearing these hats. I'm a kid of the seventies. And I remember a time when you wore hats and gloves to church. So she wore a lot of these hats to church. And so like a lot of ladies did. So again, she was very well known for this, but again, I'm not really sure whether it was from her own pattern or from her own concept. And, uh, and millinery or hat making or uh, designing and kind of uh, trimming hats is one of the crafts that's listed um, as critically endangered on our craft yep. at risk list. You also mentioned knitting and crocheting. And um, I don't think, I don't know if you mentioned quilting, but those are all also kind of on our list as well. Yep. Um, um, she also did a lot of tatting as well. Tatting was a big one. Tatting was neat. And I know that when we were clearing up my, my grandmother and my aunt had a, a big craft room in the basement of their other house. And when we were clearing up the house, I'd find a little scrap of tatting and put it in my pocket because I knew how important it was. So yeah, it was um, crochet, embroidery, tatting. Uh, my Annie Phyllis learned um, how to do bobbin lace, which was not, you know, that's, that wasn't a recent skill. That's, so she actually had to look, go off and learn that. I guess those are kind of some of the craft skills. Are there other kind of skills that were needed, do you think, for these crafts that your, your nan and your aunt did? Well, they were very good. They seemed to be very good at organizing themselves. And they were very good at, well, especially when my, when, when my grandmother would do dressmaking, she knew how to manage her time in the sense that once she had done all of her regular housework, after I would go to bed, when she'd quiet. Do you know um, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, where you have to, okay, Virginia Woolf has said that in order for a writer to be successful, she needs to have her own space in order to, in order to you know, hone her trade. Well, by my, by, by my grandmother having this studio space at night in her living room, she was able to develop and really perfect her trade. And again, my, I guess both of them just had this ability to sit and concentrate and just do this stuff. Almost. I remember spending Friday nights and Saturday nights with, with both my grandmother and my aunt, and they would just sit in front of the TV and just ream this stuff out. So it's, it's concentration and, per, and perseverance and having the patience and having the passion to, and having to do all this stuff and also having this sense of accomplishment. Like my, my aunt was so proud of all of the pieces that she made. Like we, I have two siblings and I have a, a heap of cousins. And every time you turn around, my, grand, my aunt or my grandmother was making something for one of us. Like I have boxes of pictures of um, when I was sent to those pictures last weekend, 
of, of my of my aunt and her, her hat, my grandmother and her hat work, I could have sent you, oh my gosh, it was almost like the uh, McCall's Encyclopedia of Knitting of various pictures of myself and my sister and I and my brother. Um, whenever, it seemed like every time my aunt made a sweater, there's a lilac tree in the back of their house, which still exists in the back of Newtown Road. Whenever she'd make a, uh, whenever she'd make a sweater for us, she'd put us in the sweater and then stick us in the tree. And so there was two, so we have all these pictures of us in various ages in our lives, um, sitting up in a tree wearing a knitted, a new knitted piece. So just the sense of pride and the sense of accomplishment and just, it was almost, it was second nature for both of them to just sit and make stuff, which was like completely fantastic. I've rediscovered that about me now that I'm kind of forced to sit home. I'm, I've rediscovered the fact that I do like to sit and, and fix clothing pieces of my own that like if, if there's um, a slip that I've um, that I've torn the strap on I'll sit and I'll mend that or I had a pair of splash pants last week and that I tore the I, I ripped the seam I'll sit and I'll fix that kind of stuff so I do have that skill but it's it's all about sitting and having the patience and having the self-discipline to sit for a period of time and even if there's other stuff going on around you to actually be able to concentrate on what on, on what hand skill you're doing while the rest of the world kind of does their thing, if that makes any sense. So and you mentioned yeah. um, like a sense of accomplishment. And earlier before we kind of actually started recording, you mentioned a little bit about some of the different embroidery that was or is still, I guess, able to be seen at both uh, the Arts and Culture Center. And I think you said the cathedral as well. Could you tell mm. me a little bit more about that? Sure. So my aunt. Phyllis was quite a prolific embroiderer and throughout my life and my childhood she would often make kneelers out of embroidery and that are still on like there's a what's known as a litany desk which is um, a litany is this long prayer there's a special book that has the litany in it that's on this desk and on the kneel and there's an, a special kneeler that might that's about oh I don't even remember. It's quite a large piece. That's she completed in 1983. That's on display. There are many cushions in. There are um, a a part of the clergy called a canon, and there in the in the cathedral there are these seats called canon stalls where these clergy members would sit. And she had made numerous cushions for these canons. There's also in the cathedral, there's a long kneeler at the altar rail that she also did a, a, a big chunk of. And as well, because she was part of the altar guild, one of a part of her skills would be, she would also be interested in mending and cleaning and fixing pieces of, of sacramental robes for the priests and such. So it was, it was a, a skill that she had her entire life. And even she had health issues at the end of her life one of the last things she did before she passed away was she had a big bag of, of mending things that she hadn't, hadn't completed. And, and when she was sick in the hospital, one of, my, one of the things I had to do was take this bag into the hospital and she'd say, well, please pass this bag of mending onto so-and-so. So it's, um, it's, you know, crafting, as you know, is a, it's, you know, it's, it's a lifelong passion, drive, obsession, it's, it's probably aren't even the right words. It's, it's, it's a lifelong duty. If you it, like, especially for something like an altar guild where you're making and maintaining and preparing 
preparing pieces for the church that you kind of don't, you never really, you're, you're always doing it once you, once you first get involved. My grandmother was, my, both my grandmother and my aunt were founding members of the um, St. John's Guild of Embroiderers, which is still an ongoing group. And one of their key public pieces that they both contributed to was if you go to the Arts Color Center, to the upper level of the main lobby, there is this large caricature piece of the, um, that I can't remember the person who created the piece, but it's, it's a cartoon of Sir Humphrey Gilbert's landing in Newfoundland in, I can't remember the year, but it, this, this piece was begun in 1983, which was the anniversary of Sir Humphrey Gilbert's landing in St. John's. And the Guild of Embroiders spent at least 10 to 15 years complete, competing this huge piece I did a lot of the background. Um, they needed a lot of people to, to just do, a lot of people, they, they would have people come in and do stitching. So a lot of um, local politicians and celebrities, whatever, would come into the to this studio that, they, that the Embroiderers Guild had in the Arts Center Center in order to add a stitch to this gigantic piece. I spent a couple of summers after leaving classes at the university, I'd leave class, like an arts class or whatever, and walk over to the Arts Center Center I remember just doing background because they needed people just to do just to do basic like beige stitches, and I don't know how much of a chunk of that I did, but anyway, it's it's it just shows the um, it's an, an example of the passion and devotion that that embroiderers have to their trade and just the sense of accomplishment when, when they do complete the trade and complete the, the project. So that was oh, I think it was I don't I can't remember the exact year they finished it, but it was quite some time. But it was, um, yeah, quite wonderful. Oh my goodness! And my both my grandmother and my aunt were involved with the Anglican Cathedral uh, sales. And my grandmother and my aunt, being accomplished knitters, were involved with what was known as the wool stall or woolen goods stall. And so every in the spring and the fall of the year, they they would make pieces to be sold. But there was a, a large number of ladies in the parish who would also make sweaters and socks and babies things to be sold as a fundraiser for the maintenance of the parish hall. And I was personally involved for like 30 years, but I don't even know how long the wool stall went on for, but there was quite a number of, of ladies who would just give their times to make socks and mitts and hats and everything. And uh, it's, it, it, I, it, it, it was a great fundraiser like that, that, that stall alone would make about a thousand like my when I was running it I, I I took it over after my aunt passed away I would have to call up the knitters about a few months ahead and say hey the um the stall is going to have the sale in a few weeks time can we count on you for for providing some pieces and I'd have to go around and collect all these pieces from various people we would make about a that the stall at the table would make about a thousand dollars in one afternoon just people donating their time and there was many, many, there was many, many ladies, but one lady who I have to mention, I can't remember her first name, but her name was, she, we only ever called her Mrs. Cook. And that was C-O-O-K-E. And Mrs. Cook would knit these very fine baby pieces. Very fun, the little tiny little rosette embroidery bits on the, oh my gosh. And she... I don't know how long she knit for the stall for, and she would she would never just knit for her family. 
she would knit these fine baby pieces like boy and girl like pretty dresses and bonnets and everything and, and it would all come down in very lovely wrapped in lovely fine paper and everything and she'd say to your family to, to, to her family now if you want something for the baby you have to go to them to the end of the sale and buy it from the stall you just can't so she actually the last time she contributed to the sale her daughter-in-law brought down the stuff and said this is the stuff for my mother-in-law but i'm not leaving it i'm gonna buy it and take it with me right away <sighs> guess how old she was the last time she contributed to this to this doll given kind of the history there i'm guessing she was probably in her in her 80s maybe it sounds like she was quite the the knitter or what what age was she 97 wow and the average age when i was running the stall and i'll have to have another chat with you some other time the average age of people contributing to the stall when i was working on that stall was was between the ages of 85 and 97 and unfortunately um most of these ladies don't exist anymore but they contributed for a long long time so it's uh, so it's it really is a beautiful thing and it's a dying art and it's uh but i do know people who are who are knitting in now and still contributing and i'm, I'm so happy that we're ha that you're having these conversations and celebrating these things you know it's it's primarily in my observation primarily women and women's work that's taken for granted and so thank you for celebrating this and and and, and sharing it and preserving it because um I still think that people are taking it up more so than what we think. And I'm hoping that it doesn't die out, but it's, it's quite, a, it's, it's, it's quite important to celebrate it and talk about it. Cause it's knowing that I was having this conversation today. I was kind of, I'm so protective of this topic that I was like, I was vibrating all day. Cause there are so many beautiful people who I know who have been crafters over the years. And not only my aunt Phyllis, but my aunt Phyllis's best friend was Elizabeth Walker. And she did crochet and knitting forever and embroidery and Mrs. Cook and there's Madge Young, who was a lovely knitter and oh my gracious, all kinds of amazing, amazing, awesome knitters who, and embroiderers and uh, <sighs> embroidery is beautiful because it's a non-verbal history that's recorded right there in front of you. And I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware that like my, my both my grandmother and my aunt and my other aunt and many of these ladies, I know that they were fully literate, but you have a lot of ladies that knitted and embroidered who were not literate. And these skills are passed down from one generation to the next. There is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful embroidery piece down at the cathedral, which I have to show you. And it dates from 1895. And it was this huge, a frontal is a, a piece that goes in front of the altar during every season has a different color and every season there's a special frontal in front of the altar and that's not only at the cathedral that's at other churches worldwide down at the cathedral during their it's on display in their library there is a piece that dates from 19, 1895 and it's done by these two sisters whose last name is browser so b-r-o-w-s-e-r -E and it is magnificent it is all beautiful roses and it's all done by hand it's the full length of the altar and it was done by these two ladies these two sisters by hand post 1892 fire and a lot of it is gold thread 
so you can imagine how to be produced. There's no, to my knowledge, there's no verbal record of these two ladies of, of, of other experiences, but yet the fact that there's a piece of embroidery, that's as, as good as having a verbal document or a literary document to prove that they existed. And that's one of the important things about um, knitting and embroidery and crochet is that it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tactile document. If anyone out there knows of anybody who is knitting and enjoying it, celebrate what they're doing because it is an art and it is a language of craft. Thank you for everything and best creative wishes and congratulations on all your efforts. This is really important what you're doing. I'm so proud of you for doing this. Thank you again. This has been wonderful. And I oh, really no appreciate problem. you taking the time to talk about your nan and your aunt and all of that no history. Problem. So. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.